but as an offshoot of last Wednesday night study. Last Wednesday night we were studying the Holy Spirit, and on, these, on Wednesday nights this spring I've been teaching a series entitled How Whatever Works in Everyday Life. I'm convinced that most Christians think the, the majority of what we do, we do inside the walls of the church. And then when we get out there in ordinary, normal, real life, all the stuff we do in here kind of doesn't work or doesn't happen. And look, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't happen outside the four walls of a church, it's not real. I believe, I believe God is in us. If he's in us, he, we, we ought to carry him everywhere we go and stuff ought to happen out in the marketplace. So if it only happens inside the church building, I don't think it's very real. The stuff that, that God does, he wants us to apply. The secret to Christianity is not knowledge or information or even understanding. It is application to apply the principles to your life. That's the secret to overcoming Christian life. So we've, we've been doing these series on how whatever it is works or operates in everyday life. And last Wednesday night, we did one on how the Holy Spirit operates in everyday life. And so from that, when I got to the nine gifts, I realized, you know, it's, it's, it's incomplete and inadequate to just say, well, the Holy Spirit wants to operate in our lives out there in everyday life through the nine gifts. Because a lot of people will read 1 Corinthians 12 and they'll wonder, what does that mean and, and what would that look like operating through me in everyday life? So I thought, why not take the next three Wednesday nights, there are nine gifts of the Spirit, why not take three each night and just walk through them and explain what they are, show in the Bible instances and cases where they were used in people's normal everyday life, and then show in our lives how they could be used in 21st century postmodern America today where we live. And that's what I'm going to do. So let's first turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and read about the spiritual gifts, and then we'll get into the first three. And rather than break them up into the brackets of division that are relevatory gifts and spoken gifts and power gifts, I'm going to just uh, delineate them as they come in the passage, and we'll just deal with them that way. I'm reading from the New International Version now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. I do not want you to be uninformed. So see right there, Paul's establishing by the Holy Spirit that it is God's will for us to understand the gifts of the Spirit. Right there, the Spirit, he does, I, does, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about an utterance that you are sincere about from your heart. And here's where he gets into the, the differentiation of the gifts. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Now, hit the pause button on this and, and listen to me. We do not serve three gods. We serve one God. Okay? But that one God manifests himself as three personalities. There are not three gods. There's not Father God, Son God, Holy Spirit God. There is God. But that one God manifests himself as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a, a subtle but profound ecclesiastical and theological difference in those two dynamics I just made clear to you. So we serve one God who manifests himself in three persons. The best example that I've ever been able to come up with to explain the Trinity, and the word Trinity is not in the Bible anywhere, so don't go looking for it, you won't find it, but the essence and meaning of it is there. The word rapture is not in the Bible anywhere, but the essence and meaning of it is there. So to me, the best example of the Godhead or the Trinity is water. It's water. At room temperature, it's liquid. Put it in the freezer, it's solid. Boil it on the stove, it turns to steam, it's a gas. So it's solid, liquid, gas, yet it's all three water. So to me, that's a better illustration than three slices of a pie or anything else I've ever heard is, is that, that water, solid, liquid, or gas is still water. So there are different kinds of spirit, but the same spirit distributes them. Different kinds of gifts, rather. But the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The manifestation is given for what? The common good. The, the work of the Holy Spirit is always for the good of His people. Now hit the pause button and listen to me. 
That does not mean that everything the Holy Spirit does in your life is going to feel good. A lot of people read that and they go, oh, praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit is always for the common good. So you can't prophesy nothing negative about me. Not true. Uh, not, too, not too long ago, a man stood up in the largest church in America and rebuked the pastor publicly. You can watch it on the Internet if you want to. Um, I was in a very prominent evangelist many years ago, the most prominent evangelist in our time outside Billy Graham. I was at his church in Louisiana for a while uh, as a, as a, just as a guest, and someone gave a prophetic word that was... Uh, very powerful, and it was, it was corrective in, in the church. And the pastor, you know, he didn't say anything negative about the corrective word. So just because what the Holy Spirit is doing is for our good doesn't mean it's going to always feel nice. Working out is for our good. I don't even need to finish it, do I? It don't always feel good. Okay, here's where we get into... The literal delineation of the gifts. First Corinthians chapter 12. Um, to one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. I want you to pay attention how Paul keeps keeps mentioning and, and reinforcing in this passage the one spirit. There, this, it's the same spirit. It's one spirit. He's wanting the people to understand that the propensity of human, uh, human animals is to, is to run after idols. Our, 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 our history is littered with idolatry. So Paul is trying to mitigate that. He's trying to ameliorate that by, by reinforcing to them that the Holy Spirit is one God. He's the same Spirit, but he gives these different gifts. So he, does, he didn't want people worshiping the God of the message of wisdom or the Spirit of the word of knowledge or the Spirit of the gift of faith. You know, he wants them to understand it's the Holy Spirit who's giving all these gifts and manifestations as he wills, and that Holy Spirit is part of the one true God. All right. To another faith by that same spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between spirits. To another speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So it is an issue of the will of God. It is a matter of the sovereignty of God. Now, now, I want to I dispel something we probably all heard all our lives. All my life I heard this saying, and it is unbiblical, and I can prove it. All my life I have heard, we need a revival. Revival is a sovereign move of God. No, it's not. Revival has never been a sovereign move of God. Revival has always been a very predictable response of God to a willful move of His people. 2 Corinthians 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Jesus told the disciples, go to the upper room and do what? Pray and wait. Anybody know how many days they were in the upper room? Ten days. It took them 10 days to all get in one mind and one accord. That doesn't mean they were driving a Honda. <laughs> but they were, they were all... <laughs> took a minute, but you got it, huh? They were all in one mind and in one accord. It took 10 days to get there, okay? Now, when Jesus gave that order, think about this. It was right before he ascended, he gave that instruction to over 500 people. But there were only 120 in the upper room. What happened to the other 380 people? I've always wanted to know that. They had something better to do. Man, diversions and distractions will, will steal from us. Will steal from us. Diversions and distractions will steal from us what God 
is trying to do. Just give me a minute. I'm just scrolling Facebook here. Diversions and distractions will steal from us what God has to do in our lives. Okay. How the gifts of the Spirit operate in everyday life. Number one, we're going to talk, start with the first three. And the first one is the message of wisdom. I'm going to give you a definition, actually two definitions. One that's, that's kind of theological and one that's kind of practical. And I'll give you the practical one at the end of this. So the one that, that's a little bit more theological is, uh, the message of wisdom is understanding how to navigate a complex issue to a desired outcome by the Spirit of God's wisdom. Understanding how to navigate a complex issue to a desired outcome by the Spirit of God's wisdom. That is a message of wisdom. It's not information. It's how to. How to. It's not facts. It's how to use facts in a most prudent and discerning way to, to manage and engineer an outcome that, that furthers the purposes of God. That's what a message of wisdom is. I'll give you some examples from the Bible. Noah's skill to build the ark. Uh, some people think that, that Noah made the ark out of gopher wood. There is no such thing as gopher wood on the earth. There never has been. Gophering is a process of using pitch to coat wood and actually make the pitch sink into the wood where it's waterproof. Gophering is a process gophered wood or gopher the wood or tell your boy to gopher the wood <laughs> anyway uh, but gophering is a process it's, it, and, and the, the King James renders it build the ark out of gopher wood that would be like me telling somebody build the ark out of laminate wood well you can't go find a laminate tree they don't grow you have to make laminate wood so the same thing as gophered wood you have to make it so Noah had to gopher the wood First, he had to go for the wood. Then he had to go for the wood. He had to laminate it with pitch and, and make it sink into the wood. Uh, who, know, who can tell me, and this is not fair for Josh Peck, because I just told him this yesterday. Uh, so you can't answer. Who knows the only wood that will never rot? Anybody? Cypress. Cypress. Larry gets a hand clap. All right. And because God decided it wasn't going to rot. So Noah's skill to build the ark, that's a message of wisdom. How do you build an ark? Now, God gave him the dimensions, but how do you actually build it? And how, what makes you think that was a message of wisdom? Maybe Noah was just a great builder. Here's why I know it was God. Nobody had never built no ark before because it had never rained before. Nobody hadn't even built a boat before. It took God. So God gave Noah a special kind of spirit-infused wisdom as to how to build that ark. And yeah, he gave him the dimensions, and he gave him the, the air vents at the top and all that. But how to do that, that came from God. Uh, military strategies in the Bible. There was a time when, when King David told his soldiers to go to this certain place and wait until you heard the sound of marching in the balsam trees. And when that happens, then you'll know that it's time to advance toward the enemy. That was a message of wisdom, not just knowledge. It wasn't just facts. That was a how-to thing. So, again, you have a biblical record of the Holy Spirit's operation in one of our patriarchal forefathers in everyday life, military strategy. Uh, let me read you an account from the Bible. It's, uh, it's in the book of Exodus, chapter 31, verses 2 through 11. Uh, here's, an, here's, a, here's an account of two men who were specifically anointed by the Holy Spirit to help build the articles and items used in tabernacle worship because mere mortals had no idea how to do the things that God was telling them to do. So God not only told them what to do, he gave them special Holy Spirit-infused skill to do it, a message of wisdom. Uh, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and it filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, there it is, with knowledge and all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I've given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I've commanded you, the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant Law with the atonement cover on it, 
and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table, all its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I've commanded you. So here we see this message of wisdom operative in the construction of the tabernacle. Now, this was not the temple that Solomon built. This was the tabernacle built under Moses' leadership. It was a tent so that they could take it down and they could carry it with them. And it was covered with all kinds of hides, sea cows and all kinds of other things. So pretty amazing stuff. So how would that look today? What would a message of wisdom look like in your life today? One would be how to resolve a conflict, a severe conflict in a relationship especially for an outsider. Uh, I'm just going to tell you that the most draining work a pastor ever has to do is counseling. It, 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 it's, it's the vampire of the ministry. It just sucks the lifeblood out of your soul, man. Because it's so, it's so difficult to try to help people and they're... They're not sure. And look, Freudian psychology, I studied that. Sigmund Freud was a raging pervert himself. So Freudian psychology, I, I, could, I could not care less about. The Bible's the greatest psychology manual on the face of the earth. But people are complicated. And people, people create their own tsunamis of complex problems. And then they marvel that their lives are complicated and, and destruction is going on around them. And it's painful. It, it, it draws you empathetically into these, pe- into these people's lives. You see them, you see them melting down or, or volcanically erupting, and you're trying to get wisdom into their, into their spirit, and it's, it's so hard. Sometimes you need a Spirit of God-anointed word of wisdom how to resolve a conflict in a relationship. Sometimes you need one to, to resolve a relationship in which you're involved. So... Another message of wisdom could be what to do in an emergency situation. I mean, God could tell you, don't go that way, go this way. You could just feel so prompted, danger, safety, and you won't know why. That's a, that's a miraculous leading of the Spirit of God. It's a message of wisdom. Always listen to that. Some people say, follow your instincts, follow your gut. I say, follow the Spirit of God, because He knows more than we do. He knows more than our gut. He knows more than our instincts. Um, A common-sense way to think about the message of wisdom is it is the spirit-led use of information in a wise and prudent way for a specific situation. The spirit-led use of information in a wise and prudent way for a specific situation. The message of wisdom is a how-to, a supernatural how-to that God gives you to help you navigate and understand complex issues that you could not ordinarily understand in your flesh. This is not just the fact that you might have an IQ of 180. That's got nothing to do with it. The message of wisdom, it it enables you to understand maybe the, the solution to a problem, and you don't know how you understand it. You just suddenly know how to fix it. You just know how to fix it. My dad was in a boat off the coast in the Atlantic Ocean, or the Gulf, I can't... I can't remember which, it was big water, and a storm came up and it got rough, and the man hit the key to the boat to go home, the boat wouldn't start. And they didn't know what to do. And my dad, who probably had an IQ of 200, he was just a brilliant man, dad very calmly uh, went to a place where they had an extra battery in the boat. I think dad might have put it there just in case this happened. Extra battery in the boat, took it to the back of the boat, the two guys with him were scared to death, literally shaking. And, and they wouldn't even hand Daddy tools because the boat's pitching. And they, they were afraid to move. And Daddy got back there and just took the wires off the old battery, put the cables on the new battery, started the boat, and drove them to safety. Uh, message of wisdom that, that I, don't know, I don't know how the new battery got there. Daddy might have put it there. It might have just been there. But to know that a new battery is what they needed, I think that's a message of wisdom, how to navigate a complicated situation in life. So that's the first one, a message of wisdom. Now, 
Does anybody have a question about that? We're kind of do it open floor as we go. Questions about, about a word of wisdom, message of wisdom. Anybody? You want to talk about this for a second? We'll have a Q&A at the end of the, at the, end of the teaching too. All right, let's go on to the next one then. The next one is the message of knowledge. Message of knowledge. This is information and facts supernaturally revealed by the Holy Spirit as a benefit to the purposes of God. Information or facts supernaturally revealed by the Holy Spirit as a benefit to the purposes of God. In other words, a message of knowledge is just that. It's knowledge. It's facts. It's data. It's info that you could not have known unless God told you. Um... Make sure you're right on this stuff. If, if a, if a, it used to be real popular in church. Many of you that have been around a while, you, you've seen this happen. You know, pastor's preaching, all of a sudden he starts operating in the gifts. And he'll say, there's someone here who's having problems with their teeth. You know, if that's real, there'll be somebody there who's having problems with their teeth. That's a word of knowledge. Okay? Um, somebody here just found out they have cancer. God will heal you if you come forward. That's a word of knowledge, okay? I've seen that happen many times, and it's been legitimate. I've also seen illegitimate charlatanism take place. When <laughs> I wasn't at this service, but this happened in, my, in a church my father knew about. Evangelists showed up, and, and sometimes they'll walk up to a person he walked up to this woman and said, ma'am, you're having problems with your teeth. And she said, really? He said, yes, ma'am, God showed me. And this is in the middle of a church service, you know. And he's, he's the pastor, he's the visiting evangelist. God showed me you're having terrible problems with your teeth. And she said, you sure about that, preacher? Yes, ma'am. She pulled out a full set of false teeth and said, I don't think so. <laughs> well, needless to say, it, it went downhill from there. The same guy told another woman, you're having trouble with your female organs, to which she responded, I had a complete hysterectomy. I don't know how that could take place. So you've got to be careful with this stuff. God's not playing. This isn't a shell game. You know, we throw darts at the dartboard and hope we get one right. That's not the way this operates. Now, I want to say something about this. I want you to hear me because this is important. It is very serious when you open your mouth and say, Thus saith the Lord. You better be sure that thus saith the Lord has happened. And you better know what you're talking about. Because for us to say, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord is not spoken, that was one of the reasons God got mad at ancient Israel. Because the priests would say, Thus saith the Lord, and the Lord hadn't spoken. And the false prophets would say, Thus saith the Lord, and the Lord hadn't spoken. That is charlatanism. Back in the 70s and 80s, and the charismatic movement was burgeoning to its full potential and power. That did more damage to the credibility of the body of Christ and the ministry of the gospel than anything else. William Shakespeare was a demonized man who was tortured in his brain, but he did say some things that were true. And one of the things he said that was true was, in Othello's advice, he said, to thine own self be true. That's powerful, good, good advice there. But another thing he said was, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. Which means you can do a whole bunch of stuff right, but you do one thing wrong, and the one wrong thing, that's what people are going to remember you for. And so no matter how much good these ministers might have done, to get up in a public place and miss God completely and tell a woman with false teeth, you're, you've been having trouble with, with your teeth and they're killing you right now. And she don't have any teeth. Come on, man. We don't need that kind of stuff. Listen, I, want, I just feel prompted to say this to you. Folks, listen to me now. There is a big difference between that which is truly spiritual and that which is merely sensational. And spirituality and sensationalism are not always on the same page. And God does not need us to sensationalize what is truly supernatural. Truly supernatural moves of God are sensational on their own. He doesn't need our exacerbation to make it better. I.e., example, pushing people down when you pray for them. 
If God wants to knock somebody down, all the props of Humpty Dumpty's men aren't going to hold them up. They're going to go down. But if you push them down, the whole congregation may go, oh, God's moving. But that one person right there is going to know you push them. Boy, you don't push me. If I go to a church, I don't care if I'm on national television and it's brother or sister. So I start feeling pressure. I'm going to pop that hand away. I'm going to say, do not push me. And I'll go right back to praying. You know what they'll do? They'll go to the next person in line. won't say nothing to me again. I'm not opposed to being slain in the spirit. I've been slain in the spirit. When I, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, I laid in the floor of a campsite in South Carolina in a place called Possum Kingdom. <laughs> for two hours. I laid, I laid on the floor in Possum Kingdom for two hours. I sure did. And uh, God, God, but God did that. God doesn't need a preacher to push me down. And don't, don't let anybody do I was just trying to help your faith. That, that's not helping anybody. That's charlatanism, and it's a bunch of hooey. Put some mustard on it, tie a dollar to it, and throw it out the window. That way you might know you lost something. Message of knowledge. So what, is this, what does this look like from the Bible? All right, here's a perfect example from Scripture of the message of knowledge operative in the life of a prophet in the Old Testament. This comes from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 12. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. The man of God being Elisha sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. That's a word of knowledge. Words of knowledge over and over and over. And what was the definition? As a benefit to the purposes of God. Words of knowledge are not given. Listen. Words of knowledge are not given to make a pastor seem superhuman. Or puff him up with pride, even if he sounds humble about it. And I want to be careful what I say here because I've got strong feelings about this. I've got to remember that these people can get on the app and listen to everything I say now <laughs> all over the world. So I, I have to be prudent here. But God doesn't need us to try to gerrymander things in church to make them seem more sensational. Let me tell you, the most powerful thing that happens in church is not somebody twitching and jerking on a seat or falling out and foaming at the mouth. The most powerful thing that happens in church is when somebody sincerely, authentically, genuinely changes their life because of the power of God, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit. We don't need to sensationalize something that profound. It just doesn't get any better than that. You can't sensationalize enough. All the fireworks in Disneyland and all the lights in Hollywood couldn't sensationalize enough. One person deciding, I'm not going to hell. Instead, I'm going to heaven. I'm no longer living my life for myself or for the devil. I'm going to live my life for God. I'm going to be a changed person. I'm going to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. I'm going to submit to the will of God. Rather than being profane, I'm going to be holy. I never want to go back to a life of sin. Man, what? How big would the explosion need to be to sensationalize that? Nothing the earth could do could compare with one soul being saved. So our pathetic attempts to really play God and usurp the true power of the Holy Spirit for some hokey joke that a preacher plays on people, it just infuriates me. I will tell you this story. I was at a meeting of a very famous evangelist, probably at the time the most famous evangelist in the world. And he said, everybody who's a pastor of any kind, senior pastors, youth pastors, associate pastors, I want you to get up and come to the platform. Well, I was a youth pastor. I got up and came to the platform. He lined us all up across the platform. I was over here, and everybody was this way. Hey, look, I don't resist God, man. I don't resist God. I wasn't up there bracing myself saying, I'm not going to let the Holy Spirit fall or anything like that. I was just worshiping God, man. 
this guy came down and he's telling everybody, hold out your hands, hold out your hands. And, and I, you know, you, you know what's going on around you. You know, I do. I was worshiping God and I kind of looked. And every one of these preachers, man, they were just falling like cordwood. Blap, 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 blap. Everyone without exception. He got to me and he, he had oil all over his hands and he said, pow, and he hit my hands. Take the anointing, brother. And I said, hallelujah. And I just lifted my hands. He said, brother, 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 open your eyes. He looked at me and said, take the anointing, brother. And I went, pow, and I went, he went, went on out. Man, you don't don't play those games with me. If God wanted me on the floor, I would have fallen out and twitched like a dying cockroach. But God didn't prompt me to do that. I wasn't being belligerent. I wasn't being rebellious. It just wasn't what God wanted to do in my life, and I am unfazed by peer pressure. I'm totally unfazed by it. I don't care who's doing what. It's got to happen real in me, or I ain't playing. Amen. That's right. Boy, it made him mad. It made the, made the pastor I was working for kind of miffed at me, too. You know what? I'll give you a quarter. You can call everybody who cares, because <laughs> I don't. All right. How does, that, how does that look in everyday life? God may give you a word of knowledge if someone has a specific disease. God may give you a special anointing out of nowhere. Suddenly, you know how to play a musical instrument. That happened in my life. We had a pastor when I was a young boy named Edgar Clark. And he was missing these two fingers on one of his hands. So he only had three fingers on one, hand, on one of his hands. He was our pastor out in the middle of nowhere, South Carolina. We didn't have a piano player. I was just a tot. We, we didn't have a piano player. So he was praying, God, give us a piano player. God, we need a piano player. And the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, Edgar, you play the piano. He'd never sat down at a piano a day in his life. And he told God that. And the Holy Spirit, you know, God often speaks in real simple sentences. And when God starts repeating himself, you better be listening. And God said to Edgar a second time, Edgar, you play the piano. He walked over to the piano, sat down in front of it, and instantly knew how to play it. And played the piano in our church for years, even went on to Nashville and made records with him playing the piano. So you have to be willing, you know, to listen to what God says. And you have to be eager to obey God. And that's how it operates in everyday life. God could give you a gift of how to do something, the knowledge of how to do it, and you've never done it a day in your life. A factual insight that could only be revealed by God. Okay? So that's that's how faith operates. I'm sorry, that's how the word of knowledge operates in our lives as one of the nine gifts of the Spirit. And the last one we're going to talk about tonight is faith. Now, this... This is a different kind of faith than just the faith to be saved, all right? I know I, I, know I dare say that, and the ecclesia of our nation may arouse their hearing and, and pay attention close to what I'm saying, but this is my opinion. I believe this is a different kind of faith than simply faith for salvation. Number one, because when you have faith for salvation, you don't have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number two, this is a special list of nine specific spiritual dispensations of the Holy Spirit after salvation that are greater because everybody has knowledge before you're filled with the Holy Spirit. We all have knowledge. We all know how to brush our teeth, I hope, put on shoes, you know. There was a video on YouTube the other day or Facebook one, Facebook on how to boil or how to cook air. I'm not joking. How to cook air. It had over a million views. I know it was a joke. I know people watched it for a joke. But I'm sitting there thinking, a million Americans watched a video on how to cook air, and we wonder what's wrong with our country. I didn't say that, just for the record. If you heard that on the microphone, the pastor didn't say that. I have, I have, uh, I love California and all the people there. 
I do. We, we got to love everybody, even the people in California. <laughs> this is a special dispensation of faith given by the Holy Spirit. So special that it's included in this list of nine supernatural gifts given after the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So those reasons are why I don't believe this is just ordinary run-of-the-mill faith. I think this is a special dispensation of faith. Okay, here's my definition of it. A special gifting of faith which enables a spirit-filled Christian to believe for miracles and do certain things he or she would never ordinarily be able to accomplish otherwise. That's what I believe this is. You may be asking, how can we be seeing these spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come in the Old Testament. Uh, I kind of beg to differ with that theology. I believe the Holy Spirit was operative in the world, not in terms of the Holy Spirit as His office in the church and manifestation in the church and operation in the church. But the Spirit of the Lord that came on Samson, that's the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. You know, so the Holy Spirit was on the earth because God was on the earth, because Jesus was on the earth, because they're omnipresent, which means they're everywhere. So in these Old Testament men, how could Samson take the jawbone of a donkey and kill a thousand people? How could he take the gates of a city and walk off with them? The supernatural power of the Holy Spirit operative within him. It wasn't necessarily the gift of the Holy Spirit as recorded in 1 Corinthians 12, but it most certainly was the gifting of the Holy Spirit operating in Samson's life. Uh, and I believe this same thing happened in the New Testament, possibly before the day of Pentecost. Because God is sovereign. He can do what He wants. But this kind of faith enables spirit-filled Christians to believe for miracles and do certain things he or she would never ordinarily be able to accomplish otherwise. Here's how that looks in everyday life, in, in the real world. There was a missionary lady who was in Africa. And they decided they needed to dig a well for a, I believe it was for a school. I may be mistaken about that, but I think it was for a school. And they wanted to dig a well. So they all got together and they dug this well. They dug it deep. And they said, well, we'll come out here in the morning and this thing will be full of water. Well, the next morning they got up and went out and that well was just as dry as a bone. And the lady missionary who was a feisty soul came and got her. She looked at that dry well, took a step back crossed her arms and looked up at God and said, well, what have you got to say about that? And just turned and went back in the house. Next day, they got up and went out there, and the well was full of water. <laughs> I believe the woman had miraculous faith. Let me season this by cautioning you to be careful how you address <laughs> Almighty God. She might have had some special relationship that you might not. So <laughs> next time things don't go your way, don't cross your arms and say, what have you got to say about that? Give me lightning. That's what I got to say. I personally believe that when Shammah walked out in the middle of the bean field that the Philistines had been raiding every year, drew his sword and said, enough is enough. You're not taking one more bean out of this field. You got to come through me. I believe that was the supernatural power of God operative in Shammah's life that just gave him faith to do something nobody else was willing to do. That's the kind of faith I'm talking about. Faith that enables you to do something nobody else is willing to do. When, when Peter got out of the boat, you know, I've often wondered a couple of things about the Bible. You ever, a couple of things in the Bible just amaze me. One of them is when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, I know there's 50 trillion frogs in Egypt. I can make them all go away. When would you like me to do that? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. <laughs> what happened to the word now in Pharaoh's vocabulary? That's always amazed me. It's always amazed me. One more night with the frogs. Maybe he, maybe he found some pets. I don't know. That's amazed me. Yeah. <laughs> Just one more night. We want to collect 40,000 more frog legs. Another one was when the disciples went to Jesus and said, Master, some Gentiles are here to talk to you. And Jesus said, If a seed falls to the ground. 
and it dies. It produces many other seeds. But if it does not fall and die, it only remains one so long seed. The disciples are like, okay, is that yes or no? <laughs> Always mesmerize me. Another one is Peter in the fishing boat. Peter's in the fishing boat. Jesus comes walking on the water. Now, Peter could have come up with any litmus test for Jesus to prove he's God. He could have asked him anything. Master, if it's really you, let three lightning bolts form the words SOS or, or Yahweh or anything. You know, let 17 ducks fly by upside down, quacking in tongues, whatever. Peter goes, no, I've got a great idea. I sometimes wonder how smart Peter really was. He said, Master, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat and walk on water to you. Yeah. How dense. Jesus said, all right, it's on, baby. Come on. Come on down. The price is right. It's all a paraphrase. So Peter, being the intelligent guy he was, gets out of the boat and walks on water. The only man other than Jesus to walk on water, Peter. You know what I believe? I believe in that moment, the Holy Spirit infused Peter with such faith that he could do the absolute impossible that he never considered being able to do before a day in his life. That's the kind of faith the Holy Spirit gives as a gift of the Spirit. And I also think, and there, there's a state, I believe, listen, I want, I want you to get this. Now listen to me, this is important. I'm going to close here. This is important. If you read the Bible, faith operates through the spoken word most of the time. Almost every miracle in the Bible, somebody spoke. We, I hear people say negative stuff all the time. If you will train yourself to stop, and most of us were raised up saying negative stuff. If we will force ourselves to stop, do a 180, and just only speak faith, I'm telling you, your whole complexion of your entire life will be different. Christians are living in poverty. I believe this with all my heart. Are living in poverty, are so close to the financial flood line, they can hardly breathe because they don't understand the power of the spoken word and how it's connected to faith. Now, faith without works is dead too. But faith, words, and works, watch out. So let me read to you a passage that, that just clearly demonstrates, I believe, the Holy Spirit's dynamic power of gift of faith operating powerfully in the life of a believer in the Old Testament. This comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. It is David when he went out to face Goliath. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. Now, you know, they believe that Goliath could have been anywhere from 9 to 13, possibly even 15 feet tall. You know, all the, have you done any internet research about the giants they found, the skeletons of giants they found? You know, you'll, you'll, you'll never find a legitimate case of one because then every time somebody finds one, the local government comes, scoops up all the evidence, and takes it away. Just like, just like extraterrestrials that are reported, the, the government comes and scoops everything away. And I, I, I'm not saying I believe or I don't believe. I'm just saying giants don't fit into the template of the Darwinian theory. That's why you're never going to see a skeleton of a giant. But there, you can see pictures of them. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord, here's a statement of faith, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that I am just a bad sucker. I'm sorry, I misread that. And the whole world will know that I am the UFC heavyweight champion. I'm sorry. It says the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And then faith without works is dead. The next verse says, So as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. What if David had turned and run away? All these words wouldn't have had the same punch, would they? No. David ran toward him. Stop running from the giants in your life. 
and in the power of God run toward them and conquer them. This is a powerful, one of the most powerful statements of faith. And you know what? You know what? It's amazing. If you go back and read some of the great miracles that happened in the Bible, exactly what the person spoke is exactly what happened. David struck him down, went over, took his own. He didn't have a sword. Took Goliath's sword and cut off his head with his own sword. But David had the faith to know that's how this is going to play out. That's how this is going to be at the end of the day. That's powerful. So many times, the things that people spoke played out exactly as they spoke them. Remember that the next time you want to say something negative. So this special gift of, of faith is a special dispensation of faith which begets courage, eliminates doubt, moves us from belief to knowing, and reaches for the miraculous. I'll read that again. It is a special dispensation of faith which begets courage, eliminates doubt, moves from simple belief to absolute knowing, and reaches for the miraculous. The one thing that undermines your faith is doubt. The two cannot commingle. I know if you read these Grace Nick books that are out there, they'll tell you we all doubt, but we try to have faith, and God does miracles anyway. That is not how it works. James 1 is clear. If anyone doubts, he is like a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Any book you read, I don't care who the author is that tells you, you're going to doubt all, because you're human. You're just going to doubt. But just try to believe the best you can, and God's going to see past your weakness and grant your miracle anyway. They are lying to you. Doubt is a choice, just like faith is a choice. You choose to doubt. We choose to have faith. Stop reading every book and believing everything these well-known authors say just because they're famous. Since when did being famous automatically make you correct? Five words make you correct. What does the Bible say? Remember that. Uh, Faith. I'll give you an example of faith in the real world that happened to me. I'm not trying to build myself up, but this just happened to me. I was dating Pastor Donna at Southeastern College. We hadn't we, we, had, we, we had just been dating not very long, and she knew that I had been engaged to another girl, and I was on the basketball court at Southeastern. And I'd been playing basketball, and I, was, I came over there to the, to the sideline at the half-court mark, right on the half-court line, on the sideline. And we were talking, and I was holding the basketball, and we'd been, we'd been together a little while, but you know, I, hadn't, I hadn't said the three magic words yet. I hadn't said I love you. And we'd, we'd been together a little while, and uh, she looked at me with those big blue eyes and those blonde curls cascading down everywhere. And, and she looked at me and batted those eyes and said, do you think you could ever love me? She actually did that. She's, you did. You did. Oh, I remember. She said, do you think you could ever love me? And I said, it all depends on how bad you want to do something. I bounced the ball once, and I just Kareem Abdul-Jabbar hook shot from half court. I promise you, as God is my judge, and she was standing there, nothing but net. That's faith, buddy. And I knew it was going in. I knew it was going in. What if I'd have hit it? Goonhard, give him the consolation prize, Johnny. You know, that'd be the biggest goon in the world. But it was nothing but net. And it's like, you should have seen her eyes. After that, I convinced her I could do anything. Well, I eventually did. We got married. I didn't write, I didn't write then, but the shot was prophetic because we got married and been married 37 years. So run, to, run till that. <laughs> you hear the pride in that? I wasn't going to say it until he did. Oh, she's the girl. She's not supposed to. Okay. Another example of faith operative in everyday life is my father. My dad was in a storm. Dad used to fish a lot, and he got in a really bad storm in the Atlantic Ocean. And the swells were about as high as this ceiling I met right here. And they were in a smaller boat, a 21, 22-foot boat, and they were out there in 12, 15-foot seas. That's how you die. That's how you die. But the Lord prompted my dad and dad had the faith. Dad said to the guy driving the boat, he said, Dad said, let me drive. Of course, the, it was the same guys with the battery, same boat, 
guy was doing. I said, let me drive. So dad got behind the wheel. And you know what he did? He got up on top of one of those swells and slowed the boat down till it stayed on top of the swell and rode that swell all the way into the harbor. Faith. Faith. That's faith. What? Faith and knowledge and wisdom all working together. All working together. So that's, that's how faith operates. A spatial dispensation of faith which begets courage, eliminates doubt, and moves us from belief to knowing as it reaches for the miraculous. Now, uh, has, can anybody sh- share a thought on why does God, we're going to close here, but I'm going to give some Q&A. Why does God operate like this? We've covered these three tonight. Message of wisdom, message of knowledge, and faith. Why does God operate like this? Who's got a thought on that? Why has why God chosen to manifest himself in human life by the spiritual gifts like this. All right, let's, that's fantastic. Let's wrap it up with this. The Holy Spirit is complete in those who are spirit-filled. He may manifest any gift at any time in our lives, as long as we're willing. Secondly, we are encouraged in the Word to eagerly and earnestly seek the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially the gift of prophecy. I don't know why God wants us to eagerly seek the gift of prophecy, But the Bible tells us, seek the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I think, personal opinion, JMHO, just my humble opinion, that next to prophecy, because God says it's the best gift, in my opinion, the next best gift is discernment. And we'll get to that. But eagerly seek the gifts. Don't just passively hope you get one. Ask God to give you the gifts of the Spirit. All my life, I've prayed for two things, wisdom and maturity. All my life, those two things. Third and last, we need to see the Holy Spirit as the third person in the Godhead. He is a person. He's not an it. He's not the force. He's not this fog or this cloud. The Holy Spirit's a person. We need to see him dwelling within us as our very closest companion and empowerer. And we will see the Holy Spirit that way. He'll begin to manifest himself in our lives, not just in the church, but out in our everyday lives. Because these nine gifts are not just intended to work in here. They're intended to work out there as they are patterned in the Bible. Let's all stand.